I'm Grant Haver. I'm Zoe Weinberg. And this is Next in Foreign Policy, the podcast where the next generation of national security and foreign policy leaders talk about the issues of today and tomorrow. This week, we have a special treat for you. We're going to be talking about movies, culture, and their intersection with foreign policy with Mike Fox, a foreign policy and diplomacy professional. Mike, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Zoe and Grant, for having me on. Mike, tell us about how you got into foreign policy originally. So since I was young, and this is definitely on topic, I was always attracted to traditional hero stories, so to say, you know, good, evil, all those kinds of fun myths and superheroes and whatnot. And I also have realized, looking back now, that when you grow up, I believe, as an American Jew, with the story of the Holocaust and World War II preeminent in your cultural tradition, these stories of good and evil carry an even deeper resonance that you want to believe in these stories of justice triumphing and people surviving. And when at the same time the U.S. was intervening in the Balkans, which for a young person came across as one of these kinds of battles of good and evil, that the U.S. was intervening in what was widely viewed as a genocide. And of course, as I've gotten older, that conflict has uh, taken on a lot more nuance, and the role of the U.S. government's intervention carries a lot more nuance. But it definitely resonated deeply with me and imprinted foreign policy for me at a young age as a path to pursue. So because today's episode is focusing on pop culture and media and those intersections with foreign policy, I'm curious how you think about this. I have heard people make the argument before that for millennials, the Harry Potter series and the ways in which it sets up conflicts between good and evil has had an outsized influence in the way that millennials view the world, view politics, probably view international relations. Agree or disagree? I would agree, but I would say that's not necessarily a bad thing. What do I mean by that? Well, if you really look into Harry Potter, and sorry for anyone who's not as well-versed as us with what I'm about to say, but in Harry Potter, there's shades of gray that some of the allies that the heroes have to team up with don't always appear to be the most savory characters at first. And on the converse, the government in the Harry Potter world is depicted as being corrupt bureaucracy. And so I think that anyone who says that Harry Potter depicts simple ideas of good and evil is really not doing uh, justice either to the stories or the millennials who've enjoyed them. When you think of intersections of foreign policy and and pop culture, why is this worth talking about? So I'll take it one level higher, and it's just on what I think is a universal truism with society, is that art inspires. And it's important to have a space for art within our society. It helps us all have deeper understandings of human nature. It helps us remove ourselves from the day-to-day mundane 
lives that we sometimes live or small challenges and conflicts and helps us see, you know, greater beauties, greater truths, greater challenges. Pop culture specifically plays a role in illustrating high stakes when it comes to foreign policy. I would go all the way back to early mythology to demonstrate that pop culture and art have always depicted foreign policy. Myths were used to explain why one culture's power or aggression was justified over another's or act as a commentary on the futility and costs involved with foreign policy and adventure. And taking a few more steps to the present, look at Shakespeare. Shakespeare wrote plays that were performed for the masses, and Shakespeare used foreign policy as either the background settings for stories to help illuminate lessons for daily life, like you saw in Macbeth or Hamlet, or foreign policy was the underlying purpose of the stories, such as was demonstrated in his history plays. So for anyone who says, why does this topic matter? Um, it's always mattered. And as pop culture as the most accessible form of art is an invaluable way that the public interacts with foreign policy, aside from news headlines. So let's talk about our current myths, specifically the Marvel Cinematic Universe. What do you think those movies have to tell us about foreign policy? Whenever you look at modern intellectual property, it's a very sanitized way of referring to things such as the Marvel Cinematic Universe or James Bond, Star Wars, Harry Potter, these franchises of characters that have been with us for a while. Whenever you look at these forms of intellectual property, it's important to see them on two levels. One is, what are the archetypal stories that they're telling? And two is, what are the backgrounds for these stories? So it's honestly an update of that comparison that I was mentioning with both ancient myth and with Shakespeare. For example, with myth. Spider-Man, there's this uh, slogan from the comics and the movies, with great power comes great responsibility. What is that? It's a story of an everyday person having to be entrusted with power, and with it comes the need to act for his or her fellow man or woman. It's a timeless lesson, and I think you wouldn't see characters such as Spider-Man consistently resonate since 1962 if these very basic stories were not repeated. These stories are important for foreign policy because they help us remember the human factor. And for the public at large, when they interact with these stories, it's a very basic form of morals. We want the public, we want people who see movies to realize that they are responsible for their fellow people. They don't just exist in their own silos, that the people they should look up to are the ones who sacrifice themselves for others. That may be a little esoteric, so let me get to something a bit more basic. Now, I haven't seen the new Spider-Man yet, unfortunately, but I can refer to other Marvel films. And the Marvel films have actually had trappings of plot that engage with issues such as mass surveillance by government, 
the civilian casualties resulting from the war on terror, how societies deal with mass trauma, the plight of refugees. Also, of course, with Captain America, what does patriotism or nationalism mean? These have all been trappings that have been hung on the basic mythological stories of these characters so that the public can watch it and recognize the challenges they face today. Just like Shakespeare used the battle for Scottish independence or the Hundred Years' War as the trappings for his plays. I'm not necessarily saying, of course, that Marvel films are at the level of Shakespeare, but I think it's important to see when foreign policy does surface in these stories that resonate. So aren't these superheroes just forces for the status quo? They're not going out there and helping change the systems that oppress. They're not dealing with the economic injustices of our moment. Ostensibly, the biggest villain in the Marvel Universe was an environmentalist. Aren't these superheroes just letting us offload our responsibility of making the world better? So I will agree with one aspect of them reinforcing a status quo, that often these superhero stories reinforce an American or quote-unquote Western status quo And that's because they're produced in Hollywood, that they are a product of American or at times British culture, and as such reflect values and seen in American or British culture or ideas of British or American power. Now, as far as reinforcing a status quo, you know, I would say that it's discrediting the movie going public a bit to think that they just go consume these things and view the heroes as fighting the battles for them. I instead would encourage you, Grant, and of course our listeners, to look at the battles that these heroes are being fought. And at times, they're very anti-establishment stories. So as I mentioned earlier, in the Marvel films, certain things such as the War on Terror or mass surveillance are depicted as negatives for heroes to fight. Yes, of course, this grand villain in the Marvel films, Thanos, is an environmentalist of sorts, but he uses fascist means to achieve his aims. The heroes are constantly driving home this message that the ends don't justify the means. Now let's take it even broader. The film Avatar. Avatar was a distinctly anti-establishment message and pro-environmentalist message. It's, I think, the second or the top highest grossing movie in world history. To return it to Harry Potter, I'm not sure if you're aware, but there's actually full-on social movements and NGOs that were sprung up by millennials inspired by the example of Harry Potter. Actually, another example comes to mind, bringing up Hunger Games. In the movies, there's a famous three-fingered salute that the heroes use. This salute was then adopted by a Thai pro-democracy youth movement some years back. From Thailand, the three-fingered salute was then adopted by recent protest movements in Myanmar. 
what you see is American soft power and values of fighting for democracy and rights infused in entertainment, spreading around the world, making actual real change. I'd go back to no less an authority on anti-status quo than George Orwell to find some real grounding in why entertainment such as this has a role in pushing society to be better. In a book review he wrote of what were then called Boys Weeklies, but we would now recognize as like pulp stories of British adventurers and Tarzan. In this review of these kinds of stories, Orwell said that ultimately they're harmless for the youth to consume because at least the British youth were reading something. And he pointed out that often they encouraged people to pursue solutions. And he said, every now and then you see, for him, it was good to see a leftist message. But when you see a leftist message pop up, you know, in entertainment consumed by the youth, there's no telling how that will impact their values and political engagement later in life. A lot of the films and books you mentioned are these sort of big blockbuster productions where everybody sort of has this central point of content. And it seems to me, for Gen Z and for younger generations, the ways in which people are consuming media is much more diffused, right? It's like via TikTok, and therefore there are a lot of subcultures, and maybe there there aren't these kind of like mass market touchstones to the same extent. I'm sure you could come up with uh, examples on the other side. But I guess, what does that mean for the current generation of, let's say, like teenagers and college students and the ways in which they're going to see the world when there's a very different set of narratives and those narratives are much more fragmented? You know, as someone who is smack dab in the middle of the millennial generation, I will start off by saying I'm far from an expert on Gen Z culture. I tried to use TikTok once. It just did not grab hold of me. I'll answer it in two ways. One is, I think, as culture does become more atomized, it will not be as much as about the stories that people are consuming, but the messengers of the stories. What certain celebrities may be endorsing or supporting who are also interlaced with this more atomized culture. But then every now and then, celebrities do pop up to the front as prominent figures. And again, not a member of Gen Z, but my understanding is both Tom Holland, who plays Spider-Man currently, and Harry Styles, the famous rock star, pop star, are very popular in Gen Z. Well, Harry Styles has recently started playing a character in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And then, of course, Spider-Man made an astronomical impact in the box office, and any analysis of its box office numbers leads one to believe that it's not older folks or even millennials, for some part, going to see it, that it is Gen Z audiences going to see Spider-Man. And so what I would answer is the people in Hollywood who manage our pop culture are very smart. They find ways to latch on to whatever new way people consume culture, and then can figure out how to feed it back into collective experiences. 
At least that's what I would foresee happening. Shifting gears a little bit from content to distribution. China is obviously a huge, huge market for movies. Just really quickly, run us through how large markets for distribution end up influencing the type of content that gets produced. Yeah, of course. So on one level, the biggest story as a result of the uh, film market in China at the moment is that the top grossing movie in the world is a Chinese film called The Battle at Lake Shangjin, which I have not seen it. I don't plan on seeing it, but from my understanding, it's an action propaganda film based around a conflict between the Chinese and the U.S. Army on the periphery of the uh, Korean War. On one level, there's the Chinese market itself. It's creating new understandings of what success is, and I think it's important for us to understand that the movie industry is not just dictated by what Americans are going to watch anymore. There is another level, and I'm going to stick with you know my area of amateur expertise, film, as opposed to jumping into sports or music. So within film, there is a sense or a criticism that Hollywood edits films based on what China may want. The Chinese government has a censorship regime that looks very specifically for certain cultural flags that they feel, political flags that they feel, or ways to, one could say, punish artists who may speak ill of China. Very notable example was that the recent Oscar winner for Best Director, Chloe Zhao, had made comments about China and creativity that were fairly mild compared to other comments about China. But as a result, there was little to no mention of her Oscar win, even though she's a Chinese national within the Chinese media. Additionally, And no one knows if this is a direct correlation, but a lot of Marvel films have not been approved to play in China this year. And notably, Chloe Zhao released a Marvel film this year called The Eternals. One is left to draw whatever connections they may. The third piece of it, though, some criticism saying that Hollywood is afraid to depict China as a villain. In reality, I think that is a misnomer in the sense that Hollywood doesn't actually depict geopolitical adversaries of the U.S. as villains, except for the example of World War II and, of course, fighting the Nazis or going even further back, the British. Our other, you know, great power conflict with the Soviet Union, people in common knowledge think when you look back, oh, The communists were these villains in films. But in reality, that's not that true. Often the Soviet Union was depicted as a competitor when there were larger stakes at play, such as in the old James Bond films. He didn't often fight the Soviet Union. He fought a transnational criminal syndicate that both the Soviet Union and the U.S. government were fighting. In other classics of Cold War fiction, such as Dr. Strangelove, 
both the U.S. government and the Soviet government are depicted as villains. Now even moving more present in history, Red Dawn, which is known as a film where Patrick Swayze and a bunch of other 80s heartthrobs fight off a communist invasion in Colorado. That movie was only the 19th biggest movie in the box office in its year. It made a fifth of the top grossing movie that year, Ghostbusters. Rocky IV, which people remember as the film where Rocky boxed this villain Ivan Drago, who was the symbol of Soviet engineering and might. The movie ends with Rocky pleading the Soviet Politburo for coexistence and them applauding him at the end of the movie. So this idea that Hollywood depicts other nations as villains, it's not necessarily something that's true. And, you know, I would look at large movie in the past five years that did depict the Chinese government, The Martian. The Martian was a movie, if you recall, when Matt Damon was stuck on Mars. The pivotal way that helped get him off Mars was when NASA turned to the Chinese Space Administration, their friendly competitors for help. And it was depicted, you know, not that China was necessarily better or that everything was hunky-dory with China, but it was depicting what can be the reality in foreign policy, that there are nations that will compete with us that may be better than the U.S. at some things, but it doesn't mean the U.S. government can't cooperate with them. South Korea is also having a pretty major soft power moment uh, with the continued rise of K-pop and the recent hit of the Netflix show Squid Game, with international art being more readily consumable than ever before. What impact do you think having cultural powerhouses that aren't U.S.-based will have on our foreign policy. Let's make sure we recognize the film Parasite. It's a Korean-made film, was the first foreign-language film to win the Best Picture Oscar. What they speak to, I think, it, you know, there's a few uh, levels. Starting with South Korea, in this instance, is that the American public is more willing to accept movies and TV shows that have universal messages that resonate with American audiences, no matter how they're delivered, and as long as they're fun. Or, well, fun in, you know, at least a suspenseful manner. Both Squid Game and Parasite deal very strongly with themes of inequality, both on what it does to a family and what inequality does to a society. This issue, of course, has been very resonant in the U.S. for the past, well, for a long time, but definitely coming up more and more and more. And I think that what we're seeing is that both other countries are figuring out how to make stories that do resonate on this universal level, like you see with Squid Game and Parasite. But also, technology is allowing the American public to consume and become acculturated to the, these other forms of entertainment. A lot of people consume Parasite by renting it online, paying $20. It's not just a story about Netflix investing in foreign films, but it's the ability to 
have the entirety of film able to be rented. We don't go to Blockbuster anymore and then have to see what they have available. We could literally watch anything at any time. So if something is good, people will find it. I feel like there used to be this common trope that Americans writ large are not going to watch TV shows or movies with subtitles. Is that just out the window at this point? Like, do movies like Parasite, shows like Squid Game, shows like Narcos, etc., like, does that sort of just prove that that is totally out of date, you know, in 2021? Absolutely. You know, I'd love to understand more what helped trigger this transition. But if I had to hazard a guess, I think it's that a lot of other countries' film and TV industries have matured to a point where they can get money for things that are not just artsy, that appeal to, it's honestly making international films for American audiences. That doesn't need to be the case anymore. If we had to think of who was the real pioneer, probably Bollywood, the Indian film industry, when they started making things that Indian audiences would want to watch and the really great Bollywood movies started to become internationally popular. Springing off of that, other countries just started producing things that were entertaining above all else. And now with the internet, we can find our way to them. Even French TV has become a major thing with shows such as Call My Agent, a satire on the French film and TV industry, and The Bureau, a spy thriller. These shows are very well made and you know you can definitely call them high levels of pop culture but no one's going to look at them and say these are stuffy pieces of art they're very populist entertainment it seems to me that a big piece of this and you alluded to it is the fact that we're accessing this stuff via streaming because it also makes it lower stakes for the distributor, for the Netflixes or Kulas of the world, etc. It's not about filling a particular slot on a Thursday night during a prime time hour or filling a slot within a movie theater that has limited theaters, but rather it's one of many options on a platform. And so the stakes are just lower. Would you agree with that? Zoe, you're absolutely right. And I'll take it a step further that a lot of these streaming companies, whether it's Netflix, Hulu, Disney+, Plus, AMC+, on and on and on, they need more content. Their challenge isn't necessarily filling limited space. It's demonstrating that they have everything someone could want and is worth paying for. And so they've been seeking out these foreign markets to buy up entertainment and the rights to distribute them over streaming services or in the United States. It's gotten to a point where Netflix is actually building international studios to make these TV shows. And also, as the streaming services realize that people will watch these shows in any country, you also don't need to make shows just for one country. Netflix doesn't need to make an American squid game. They can just make a South Korean squid game. They only have to make it once, as opposed to, you know, if squid game was a 
movie 20 years ago, you would have seen an independent film studio in the U.S. buy the rights to Squid Game, remake it as an American film. Another thing that the streamers have, and I know Zoe kind of hit on this earlier, is they're pushing content on you through algorithms. And generally, we see that algorithms at Facebook, on Twitter, end up pushing you towards extremist content and towards content that one wouldn't call either wholesome or positive. And yet, it sounds to me a little bit, Mike, like you think that pop culture, especially in film, will ultimately end up having these universal human values of truth and justice and human rights. What prevents them from having the worst of humanity rather than its best? On one level, I would say is that thankfully, a lot of these streaming companies, despite being corporations, still have the idea of putting art out there. Facebook does not recognize that it is essentially a crowdsourced newspaper. They don't accept the burden of editorial ship. But because a lot of these streamers view themselves as part of these larger communities of artists, despite sometimes churning out very industrial product, there is a degree of self-regulation. And there's also a degree of self-policing within culture industries. You know, if the CEO of Netflix tomorrow just decided we're going to put radicalizing content because people are tuning into it, you would see a lot of artists leave the platform. You would see a lot of negative blowback. And because a lot of these streamers are subscription-based services and ultimately luxuries, they do need to have that degree of positive air. However, I will say there is one aspect of algorithm source entertainment that does worry me, which is a bit of a flattening of entertainment. Netflix is seen as one of the worst perpetrators of this, but this idea that Netflix knows what people will watch and then produces things based on what people will watch, not necessarily always as active audiences. You can see umpteen pieces of Netflix original content, whether they're action movies or romances. The joke is that they seem like they're derived by algorithm. It's, you know, put X famous actor with Y famous actor in Z in-demand setting with ABC plot that people will watch and Netflix will make it as opposed to asking, what is the story we want to tell? Zoe, this is an area I know of interest for you. How much of my fear of the algorithmic-based entertainment is old man shakes fist at cloud, and how much of it is actually scary? There is like real risk and concern in our lack of understanding about how these algorithms work and the ways in which it can selectively censor or selectively deliver content that puts us all in our own echo chambers. What a lot of people don't realize is a lot of the channels for consuming this information are biased and they are controlled by different geopolitical powers. I mean, we haven't talked much today about gaming, 
but gaming is increasingly becoming a platform where people are consuming different types of media. And China via Tencent owns big stakes in a lot of gaming companies. And I think it's hard to understand or appreciate exactly what the influence is there. And some of it is conjectural, but my sense is like the average American consumer of media is not even aware of those connections. I don't know, Mike, if you would agree with that. So I will say I'm not personally an expert on gaming at the moment. You know, I, I haven't played video or computer games in a long time. But, you know, I would say that there's a few things that makes me not worry as much about gaming as a way to subtly impact our culture. One is that for artistic messages to resonate, I do think there's a certain amount of time and complexity that needs to be entailed. And as far as my understanding goes, a lot of mobile games don't have time or complexity associated with them. The other thing that I would point to is a lot of gaming systems have high barriers to entry. A PlayStation 5 is expensive, and that's if you can find where to buy one. At the same time, it also requires a certain higher level of time investment. It requires a certain level of reflexes that not everybody can physically you know, keep up with. And so in that sense, while gaming does represent a financially sizable portion of our culture, and I think at times some would even say the gaming industry makes more money than the film industry, I just don't see it becoming a dominant form of popular culture at the moment for those barriers of entry. That being said, yeah, I, it, the streamers have algorithms that I would be fascinated in learning more about them. For example, there's this phenomenon you may be familiar with that Netflix shows you images on its title screens for movies that change based on your viewing patterns. So I'm a big James Bond fan. Netflix, of course, knows this because of how often I'll watch a certain James Bond movie. That being said, when I think of Mrs. Doubtfire, I don't typically think of Pierce Brosnan's supporting role as the mother's boyfriend after she divorces Robin Williams. But Netflix advertises Mrs. Doubtfire to me with a picture of Pierce Brosnan. Zoe, I think, at least from my vantage point on gaming, the massively multiplayer online portions, it's the interactions between people that matter the most. Partially because of what Mike said with the time that you spend with it. And I think the ways that games have been positive have been like Minecraft's universal library where people can go and pull down Voltaire and other works that are potentially banned in their country. But I think the ways in which that's concerning are the fact that these are unprotected spaces in which there's terrorism recruitment that's happening, in which there's potential machine censorship of pro-democracy messages and organizing that's happening in a, you know, a massively multiplayer online game in China. So it's both a space that 
can be really cool and can do really great things for organizing and for the freedom of information. But if popular games become more and more controlled by the Chinese market, or if China begins to produce more of those games and use their censorship on it, you'll find that those spaces become more hostile towards democracy and human rights, or at least speaking out against the Chinese atrocities in those areas. I also wonder if games end up becoming the portal through which we end up consuming a lot of entertainment and media, like if ultimately you end up attending concerts within virtual environments, or that's the way that you're able to access the new season of a popular show, which I don't think we're quite seeing yet. We're maybe starting to see indicators of some of that stuff. So we'll have to have Mike back on again um, in 12 months or something like that and see how those things evolve. But you're definitely right, Grant, on that point. Mike, I know we only have a a couple minutes before we we want to wrap this up, but I, I believe I promised you a fight about America's recent announcement that we're going to diplomatically boycott the Olympics over the genocide currently happening in Xinjiang. What do you think about the move? How do you think the Biden administration approached this? And do you think it'll have an impact? You know, I'll preface this by saying that I am speaking in my personal capacity and also recognizing that I do have a bias as someone who enjoys watching the Olympics every two years, despite many of its problematic aspects. I support the uh, diplomatic boycott as a move by the U.S. government. I do find it vital to make a moral statement. I do think that going further as opposed to a full boycott in which athletes would not participate in the Olympics would be a counterproductive move at this moment in time. The precedent that many people point to was the 1980 boycott by the United States and its athletes of the Summer Olympics held in the USSR as a protest against their invasion of Afghanistan. At this point in time, it's widely seen to have not carried that much of a lasting political impact. There's a few things you lose when athletes don't have the opportunity to participate. One is that Many of these athletes have trained for an Olympics game practically their whole lives, involving precise training and commitment that truly deserves to be celebrated for the achievements that are of theirs and that are their own. Additionally, despite the problematic aspects of the Olympics, it is still not just an international exchange for athletes. It's also a way for the entire world to see other countries. Often, this is a positive thing. As we saw, I think, 2018, the Winter Olympics in South Korea definitely was part of this wave of South Korean culture and awareness that has been increasing in the United States that we discussed earlier. It can also, honestly, it drives discussion. This is, of course, hypothesizing, but my hunch is that if American athletes were not participating in next year's Olympics, many Americans who do not necessarily pay attention to foreign policy would not watch the Olympics or engage with the topic. 
if they're not engaging with the Olympics at all, then they would not be seeing statements about what's happening in Xinjiang province. It would essentially remove it from the table of discussion. So anything more than a diplomatic boycott would end up being a hollow gesture. Ultimately, the conflicted nature of engaging in problematic Olympics is very much summed up by the participation of Jesse Owens, the famous track and field athlete in the 1936 Olympics that were held in Nazi Berlin. Those Olympics were seen as, yes, a legitimizing moment for the Nazi regime. However, in the light of history, the image that does last from those Olympics is Jesse Owens, an African-American athlete, beating any of Hitler's chosen models of BS, Aryan, whatever, at these Olympics and demonstrating the ultimate futility of those efforts. With that, let's turn to our final segment of the podcast where we each talk about one story, political or cultural, that we've been following in the news this week. Mike, why don't you kick us off? Sure thing. I'm following the recent election of Gabriel Boric as president of Chile. Uh, Gabriel Boric is a 35-year-old socialist member, I think, of the Chilean Chamber of Deputies who came to prominence as a student activist. I think that Boric is demonstrating a fascinating new model so far of what uh, leftism could look like in Latin America. Leftist politicians have been traditionally associated with conflicts of past generations or more, I would say, militant divides within countries. But Boric's gaze seems to be more on addressing inequality more alongside a Scandinavian model. And I think that if he is able to successfully bring some of these ideas to Chile, work through some of the stark divisions the country has at the moment, it could be a hopeful development for Latin America, for Chile, of course. And also, he would be another prominent millennial world leader embracing priorities such as climate change that are coming more and more to the forefront. This week, I am sure you are tired of hearing Zoe and I trade off between the A1 story on the New York Times, but they have been doing really killer reporting around the American war on terror and recently released some reporting around drone strikes and civilian casualties. The report found that the military used flawed intelligence to call in airstrikes, which hit more civilians than they anticipated and more than they later reported. This is really, truly horrific. In war, mistakes are made and the rules of engagement can blur. One of the things that separates America from the groups we are fighting is that we follow the rule of law and own up to our mistakes. The New York Times report has revealed that we actually do neither. If President Biden wants to make America a leader again on the world stage, he has to start by reigning in the Defense Department, understand its excesses, compensate the victims of its failures, and create a counterterrorism plan that doesn't rely on spotty intelligence and offshore balancing. Zoe, what are you following this week? 
On a more lighthearted note, since this episode was about pop culture, I'm going to keep it on that theme and plug a movie that may not be on many folks' radars right now, which is a film called Red Rocket by Sean Baker. You might know him from the films Tangerine or The Florida Project. And in full disclosure, I have two friends who worked on the film, so I am biased, but I think it's it's definitely worth checking out. I'll give a warning that it it is provocative, it's kind of racy, but I think it's very interesting. It's an interesting glimpse at folks' lives and a good portion of the cast has actually never acted before. So it's also unorthodox in a lot of ways. So anyway, you know, Red Rocket's in select theaters right now uh, in I think just a handful of cities in the US, but it's going to be rolling out more broadly. So would encourage folks to keep an eye out. So with that, thanks for joining us. Next in Foreign Policy is produced in cooperation with Foreign Policy for America's Next Gen Initiative. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. As a note here, Spotify just rolled out their rating feature for podcasts, and it would really, really help us out if you would rate us so that we move up the charts and more people can find us. You can follow me online at Grant Haver, follow Zoe at Z Weinberg, and Mike at MGFox8. If you're a foreign policy expert under 40 and want to be featured on the show, be sure to follow the link in the show notes. This week's episode is brought to you by the Finnish Prime Minister, who proved LMFAO wrong. Party rocking can actually hurt people. Join us in two weeks to hear more about what's next in foreign policy.